Welcome to the Here we go. The environmental justice report. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host and producer, Janine Moloff. Well, there's not much on the board tonight in terms of an introduction. Um, I changed topics very quickly and I just forgot to put the rest of it up, but the title is The Net Zero Scam on Carbon Reduction. And underneath it, it says the net zero scam is not the solution environmental warriors have been hoping for. So we're going to talk about that tonight, and I'm going to do my best to try and make this topic understandable and translate it. Keep in mind, folks, I'm not a scientist. I'm a journalist. I'm trying to do my best. So here we go. We've heard a lot about net zero because basically what's happening is we the earth is approaching uh, basically a, a temperature beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius that scientists say is the absolute limit before this planet becomes unlivable. So here's where this is going to start. Uh, I'll start with a quote, and this is 350.org's response to a paper um, that was uh, written by the International Energy Agency report. So here goes. The quote is from Landry Nintrest, who's the Africa Managing Director of 350.org, and it's on the issue of the, net, the new net zero, we're going to call it scheme. To quote Landry, quote, net zero is a dangerous trap that constitutes a new form of climate colonialism. And that says it right there. Too many of these alleged solutions for global warming, and, and basically are those that protect big money interests and more affluent nations that are largely wealthier and wider. So let's get into it. And Landry interest is right. While on the surface, the net zero concept, it, it sounds reasonable. The truth is much uglier. Like most multinational agreements, to borrow a cliche, the devil is in the details as wealthier and, by no small coincidence, whiter nations simultaneously skirt requirements while dumping on poorer and broader nations. This is what I call colonialism 2.0. So while poor nations pay the environmental price for the excesses of wealthy white nations, we're treated to various, I'll just call them schemes, that benefit the corporate bottom line but just don't work. The entire net zero scheme reminds me of my mother's great aunt Mary. Now, aunt Mary suffered from severe diabetes. In fact, she lost a leg to it. And once aunt Mary was given insulin, her childish solution was to take her insulin before devouring half of a chocolate cake. Well, you know how that ended, okay? So let's take a look at what the scientists have to say about net zero and other schemes. Okay, and the reason this is climate colonialism is because the richer nations just played games with the numbers, it seems. They don't want to cut back on their carbon footprint. 
They don't want to give up their cars. They don't want to give up their industrialized ways, but they expect the poorer nations to foot the bill, both environmentally in terms of just generalized uh, quality of life and so on. So let's talk about, let's, let's look at the first critic of this net zero scheme. Again, from 350.org, which is a very reputable environmentally, environmental advocate group. 350.org responds to the International Energy Agency report. Okay, so the International Energy Agency released the first its first net zero report, and this report outlined a scenario that supposedly would chart the course. And I'm I'm just reading straight from this: the course of reducing emissions, quote, from the energy sector in alignment with the Paris Agreement. End quote. Okay. So basically, this, I, this International Energy Agency has looked at the Paris Agreement that everybody thinks is so wonderful, and they're out, they've outlined a scenario that would chart how reduce, reducing emissions, especially from the energy sector, would meet the requirements of the Paris Agreement, keep in mind. The Paris Agreement, in my opinion, is far is woefully inadequate, but that's another story. Now, 350.org says the report is something to talk about because the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has a tradition of being pretty conservative in terms of this issue. In fact, they, as, as a matter of course, have, according to this paper, undermined the whole idea of renewable energy. But now they're saying, whoa, we need to look at this net zero thing. In fact, IEA reports often have quite a bit to do with shaping industry decisions in the energy industry as well as world government decisions. But the important part is the IEA, quote, finally acknowledges there is no room for new fossil fuel projects within their pathway to 1.5 degrees Celsius, end quote. So basically, this International Energy Agency has finally admitted, we can't have new fossil fuel projects and get to that 1.5 degrees limit before everything becomes totally unlivable. Now, notice the wording, though, because the IEA is more business friendly. They say no new room, no room for new fossil fuel projects. What does that mean, in my opinion, what does that mean for existing projects that are still polluting? We don't know. So 350.org continues to criticize this, and they say that the IEA scenario really depends heavily. It's, it's basically gambled all its bargaining chips on what we call net zero projects, which have basically seen polluting governments and corporations, and I'm just going to quote this, um, net zero projects, okay, let me start over, all right? Direct quote. The scenario, okay, so the scenario that's being pushed by the IEA, the International Energy Agency, quote, depends heavily on net zero projects which have seen polluting governments and corporations shifting the burden, disguising climate inaction, and maintaining a business as usual scenario, end quote. Okay, I think that addresses my concerns. These net zero projects, which are documented in Climate Change News, 
and we're going to talk about their article as well. There's several myths about net zero projects and carbon offsetting, and we're going to bust some of those myths during this, this particular program. So Anna Vickerstaff, who is also uh, with 350.org, the UK team leader, was quoted as saying the following, quote, in the past, the International Energy Agency has been hesitant to call time on the fossil fuel energy industry, not anymore. When this conservative institution is demanding an end to fossil fuels, it really is time for governments to ditch the net zero rhetoric and take immediate action to cut their support for polluting corporations. We won't stand by and let the UK government use this year to grandstand themselves by loudly celebrating empty net zero promises. The growing call for concrete action is impossible to ignore. It's time to end fossil fuels. We demand that the richest countries own up to their climate debt, support countries least responsible and hardest hit by the climate crisis through massive and unconditional climate finance and deliver a rapid transition to a fairer and more sustainable economy that works for all. All I can say to that statement is amen. And the, the Landry Ninteres, the African Managing Director for 350.org, I read part of the quote. I'm going to read the full quote now. Quote, there is a growing risk that reports such as these are shifting the narrative away from the rapid and real emissions reductions that climate justice requires. Net zero is being used by the world's biggest polluters and governments as a facade to evade responsibility and disguise their inaction or harmful action on the climate crisis. We are seeing a lot of net zero projects, for example, by fossil fuel companies like Shell and BP, where, climate, where, I'm sorry, where carbon offsetting through tree planting is being championed as the answer to the climate crisis, end quote. Again, amen. So they go on to say, Landry goes on to say, there's also massive implications for communities in the global south, Again, these are communities and nations that are poorer, but they're resource rich, and they're browner. These are not countries with a lot of white people. So, yes, this is economic racism as well as environmental racism. And a lot of these people in the global south, they live on the land where these same carbon offsetting projects for net zero are being implemented. And so one of them they mentioned, like Shell and BP are pushing, is tree planting, which sounds lovely on the surface, except they're talking about massive tree farms, which it will do the following. It will put pressure on food systems. It will generate land conflicts, and it will hurt the very countries that have done the least to cause this climate crisis. You know, how much land is going to go for these massive tree farms, land that most likely will be stolen from indigenous people that are just that are subsistence farmers. And again, going on, the next statement is, quote, we have seen violent evictions of indigenous people. For example, the Sengwer people in Kenya to make way for tree plantations, end quote. And that is uh, based on a report from Amnesty in 2018. So these people from 350.org are basically going on to say that net zero, quote, is a dangerous trap that constitutes a new form of climate colonialism. It needs to be resisted, end quote. So that's 350.org's response to the International Energy Agency report. Now we have a very important uh, piece here, 
And this is from Climate Home News. And this is titled, 10 Myths About Net Zero Targets and Carbon Offsetting Busted. Okay, and the comment is, quote, carbon neutrality targets are often not as ambitious as they sound, relying on problematic carbon offsets and unproven technologies, end quote. This particular listing in this article was uh, authored, according to this, by, quote, 41 scientists, okay, as documented by Climate Change News. Now, keep in mind, when we're talking about net zero, we're talking net zero emissions. No, you know, we're not talking about the old emissions. We're talking about no new ones. And when we talk about carbon offsets, we're talking about, okay, so if the United States pollutes heavily with their big gas guzzlers, then that means a nation down south is going to have to plant basically massive farms of trees, steal land from indigenous people, put a lot of, of um a lot of wear and tear on the soil so it can't grow other crops in order to offset, in other words, in order to, um, to offset the damage done by wealthy Western nations. Again, it's very much carbon offsetting is a lot like my Aunt Mary. You know, you take the shot of insulin before you eat half a chocolate cake. It doesn't solve the problem. It just temporarily numbs it. These 41 scientists is reported by uh, Climate Change News. I'm just going to read straight through it. Quote, the idea of carbon offsetting, which underpins so-called net zero targets, is founded on a number of myths, and they capitalize the word myths. In many cases, offsetting relies on capturing carbon in vegetation and soil. Such capacity is, however, limited and is needed to store carbon dioxide that we have already emitted. Assumptions of future technologies and targets decades ahead delay immediate action. Countries and corporations must shift focus from distant net zero targets to real emissions reductions now. The impacts of the climate crisis are becoming increasingly severe everywhere. We are experiencing heat waves, floods, droughts forest fires, and sea level rise as a result of global heat and reading straight from this. The average global temperature is rising at an unprecedented rate, rapidly diminishing the prospect of keeping global warming, warming below 1.5 degrees and with increasing risk of crossing irreversible tipping points. And this risk of crossing irreversible tipping points is as reported by media.nature.com. So, these scientists are calling them out. And what they're saying basically is this. Climate, I won't even call it climate global warming, and I won't call it climate change. Let's call it what it is. Global climate devastation. Let's cut the BS. And because of global climate devastation that's resulted in this crisis, these scientists are saying that we have to shift, shift from this net zero nonsense to real emissions reductions now, and that this whole idea of future technology somehow magically saving us, that we won't even be able to meet, we won't be able to produce that technology for decades, would, it basically delays immediate action while the fat cats get fatter. In short, these 41 scientists are saying the little girl Greta Thunberg's right, and she is. 
They're calling out this mythology, this fairy tale, that somehow we will magically technology ourselves out of this problem. And net zero and carbon offsetting is just the latest scheme, nothing else. Again, not my opinion, it's 41 scientists. I do find it very interesting that this piece was written, the authorship just says 41 scientists, it was reported by Climate Change News. And the scientists do list their names at the end of the article, though. So basically, they go on to say that in the face, and I'm just reading straight from this quote, in the face of growing demands for action, many countries and companies are making promises and setting targets to reach net zero emissions or carbon neutrality. These often sound ambitious and may even give the impression that the world is awakening and ready to take on the climate crisis, end quote. But the science is saying in practice that's not the case. And there are basically, looks like eight points that they're making here. In practice, when it comes to net zero, the scientists are saying the following, quote, net, and I'm just, I'm reading straight through this and I'm telling you when it's a quote, because this is written so well, I can't improve upon it, and I want you to know this. So, in practice, however, quote, number one, net zero targets several decades into the future. We don't have seven, and I, end quote, and I'm going to say, we don't have several decades to play around with this. Number two, uh, they're saying that net zero, quote, shifts our focus away from the immediate and unprecedented emissions reductions needed, end quote. And that's true, okay? Basically, it's a fairy tale we tell ourselves so we don't have to take action and be inconvenienced right now. Incredibly unwise. In fact, it's insane. Number three, quote, net zero targets are generally premised on the assumption that fossil fuel emissions can be compensated for by, by carbon offsetting and unproven future technologies for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, end quote. They're saying this net zero scheme, it all depends on compensating for, for the emissions we're still putting out there, the pollution we're still putting out um, by this carbon offsetting, in other words, planting trees somewhere, for instance, and a bunch of future technologies that one, a lot of them haven't been developed yet, and the ones that have been are unproven. This is basically like going to war and your enemy has a nuclear device and you have a slingshot. They go on to say in terms of net zero, quote, um, offsetting does not cancel out our admissions, end quote. And it's very true. Carbon offsetting will not cancel out the emissions that are already out there. They go on to say, quote, yet action to do so is immediately needed. And they go on to say, quote, there are a number of myths about net zero targets and carbon offsetting that must be dispelled, end quote. And so they're hoping that when they reveal these myths and out them, if you will, that people will be empowered to pressure their politicians and their office holders. And we have to. This isn't about us anymore. You know, if you're a boomer, even if you're a millennial, this is about our children and our grandchildren, will they have a planet that's habitable? Or will this planet only be a few colonies for the rich and everyone else will be just dying in misery? And that may sound melodramatic, but it's not. 
It truly isn't. This is spinning out of control. And the politicians are too busy mollycoddling these fossil fuel companies and other industrialists and the big banks instead of taking care of business. As far as I'm concerned, when these politicians refuse to do what is in the best interest of the people with so much evidence showing, that's criminal. So let's go on. Myth number one. Net zero by 2050 is sufficient to solve the climate crisis. Now that's myth number one, and the scientists are saying it's misleading. And they go on to explain that major and unprecedented reductions in emissions, as I said before, are needed right now. In fact, probably yesterday. And they, they go on to explain that if we don't cut emissions now, our current level of high emissions will just eat up the remaining carbon budget in just a few years. Forget about 2050. And that's as documented by Folk Université uh, of Oslo. So University of Oslo, in other words. This is the myth number one about net zero by 2050 being sufficient to solve the climate crisis. Um, it's also a myth because net zero targets assume that it will be possible to deliver these large amounts of what they call negative emissions. And they classify negative emissions as removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere um, through basically, you know, planting vegetation, soil, and rocks, and planting these mass plantations of trees. But they go on to say that even if you use these technologies that are suppo supposed to um, create these negative emissions, um, even at the, if they meet the numbers, it's still unproven. And that, it just is. And should not replace real emissions reductions today. Okay? If it's an unproven technology, then, yeah, we should be doing real emissions today. Um, I call all of this net zero stuff. To me, this looks like the Wall Street model of 1929. Let's go on to myth number two. Myth number two is we can compensate for fossil fuel emissions using so-called nature-based solutions, such as carbon sequestration in vegetation and soil. And, end quote. And scientists say that myth number two is misleading. And they explain the fossil fuels are part of what they call a slow carbon cycle. And they go on to say that nature-based solutions, such as, you know, again, planting trees, are part of what's considered a fast biological carbon cycle, meaning that the carbon storage, like in these, let's say you plant mass plantations of trees, the carbon storage from emissions into those trees isn't permanent. And they go on to explain why. So carbon stored in trees, for instance, can be released, by, again, by forest fires. And they go on to say that emissions, fossil emissions happen today, but their uptake, in other words, being able, the trees being, the tree and, trees and soil being able to suck up the emissions takes much longer. So again, the numbers don't work. It would just, there's too many emissions for any number of trees that they want to plant, okay? And, you know, these nature-based solutions are limited because they're needed to help remove the carbon dioxide we've already released into the atmosphere. Um, so once again, that's myth number two. What they're basically saying is these nature-based solutions for carbon offsetting. They said before, 
it takes a lot longer for even plantations of trees to suck up these emissions, much longer than we have time to fix this problem. I'm not saying don't plant trees. I'm saying that this is a myth and it's, we can't just do that and not cut emissions. We have to cut our fossil fuel emissions now. They go on and they talk about the carbon cycle and explain further. So the carbon cycle has two parts. And this, again, deals with these nature-based solutions. There's a fast cycle where carbon goes, circulates between the atmosphere, land, and seas. And there's a slow cycle where carbon circulates between the atmosphere and the rocks, making up the, the interior of the Earth. Fossil fuels, such as coal, oil, and gas, obviously come from the rocks. They're part of the slow cycle. And what, they, what this means is that, quote, carbon emissions from fossil fuel burning are today 80 times larger than the natural flow of carbon from Earth's interior, like from volcanoes. And they go on to say, quote, since the return of carbon to Earth's interior takes millions of years, about half of the emitted carbon remains in the atmosphere for a long time and contributes to global warming, end quote. So again, this is a long way of saying that these nature-based solutions, carbon sequestration in veg vegetation, trees, soils, and rocks, they're basically saying the numbers don't crunch. And it won't crunch. It's a good idea to do some of this, but it won't work if that's all we do. We have to cut our emissions now and drastically. So they go on to myth number three. Quote, net zero targets as well as carbon offsetting increase the incentives to reduce emissions because emissions are allocated a cost. And the scientists are saying this myth is misleading. The idea that there's an incentive because of a cost to reduce emissions is really misleading. The incentive basically goes down. It decreases as long as these companies can make more money to buy low-cost carbon offsets from another country than it is to reduce emissions here. Okay, this is basically another case of rich kid trying to buy their way out of a crime. That's simple. They're thinking, hmm, with this net zero model, we can carbon offset. We can just, you know, if it is a cost, if it's financially advantageous for us to just, you know, buy these carbon offsets, then we don't have to be inconvenienced here. We don't have to cut our emissions. We don't have to give up our gas guzzlers. And that's wrong. And they go on to explain that the promise of future negative emissions also reduces the incentive to cut carbon emissions because the costs in decades to come are discounted. So it's basically false. All right? As long as it costs less, to keep pushing fossil fuel, and then you just give some pennies to some carbon offsets, we're going to keep pushing out these emissions. It won't work. Myth number four, carbon offsetting in low-income countries must increase to meet the Paris Agreement. This is misleading, according to the scientists. The low-income countries have established climate targets that are in accordance with the Paris Agreement. And there is, there, there, there is no remaining carbon budget, according to this, for rich 
high-emitting nations to basically send their burden that they caused to low-income nations. Again, it's that buy your way out of trouble thing. Won't work. Myth number five, funding renewable energy projects is a good way to compensate for fossil fuel emissions. The scientists call that problematic. They explain that when you expand renewable energy, and, and expanding renewable energy in new and growing economies is important. But often that expansion of renewable energy just adds to the fossil fuels that are already being used. It doesn't, re it doesn't replace the fossil fuels. So you're just adding a new kind of, a new, you're adding more fuel to what you're doing. And renewable energy right now isn't cheaper than fossil energy. Um, and these investments in renewable energy, they, they would have happened. The big guys would have invested nothing else to keep renewable energy from being affordable. They control, you know, the patent on the invention. They're going to make sure it doesn't hit, see the light of day. And because of that, it shouldn't be counted as an offset. You know, just as, you know, everybody likes to talk about Elon Musk and his electric car, which is way overpriced in my opinion. Back in, I think it was the 1960s, these two guys, these two engineers, they came up with a way to take a plain car. They got 200 miles to a gallon. Well, you know, they were bought out, and then that particular invention never saw the light of day. The same with renewable energy. The big guys are going to continue to buy into it to make sure that it continues to be too expensive because they want every last penny of profits. Okay. Myth number six, technological solutions for carbon dioxide removal will solve the problem. The scientists say that's overly optimistic. And what they're explaining is that, yes, there are technologies being developed, but they're usually very expensive, the cost of development. Now, a lot of times they are energy intensive, as they put it. They're risky. And they're unproven, especially if you try to use it at scale. Now, the energy intensive part is the part I'm interested in because here's the deal. Uh, for a couple of years ago, there was this big push for hydrogen fuel. We will fuel our cars and our homes with hydrogen. Sounds lovely, okay? The only waste is some water as a byproduct. Well, that's not exactly true. In order to get hydrogen like that, what I read is basically they use nuclear devices in order to create it. So there's nuclear waste. This is, we just can't continue doing this, all right? And, and again, these technologies are unproven. And these scientists go on to explain, quote, it is irresponsible to base net zero targets on the assumption that uncertain future technologies will compensate for present day emissions, end quote. They're basically saying, if you know you're diabetic and you have severe diabetes, no, that insulin shot is not going to save you if you decide you're going to eat nothing but chocolate cake. You're still going to die. Myth number seven, tree plantations capture more carbon than leaving old forests undisturbed. The scientists say that is misleading. They explain that these old forests, Okay, this old growth timber has centuries worth of carbon 
that's stored in the tree, in the soil where the tree rests, and it can keep capturing carbon, according to them, for hundreds of years, as documented by IOPscience.org. Okay? The scientists are saying, look, cut your trees so that the carbon stored isn't released. When you cut down old growth trees, the tree releases the carbon that's stored up. And they go on to say that this carbon that is released by these old growth trees, when they're cut down, in order to be recaptured by new trees, could take 100 years or more by their estimate. And we just don't have the time. Myth number eight, planting trees in the tropics is a cost-effective win-win solution for both nature and local communities. Scientists classify this myth as oversimplified. And they explain, they say, look, there's trade-offs, quote, between managing forests for cost-efficient carbon capture and for meeting the needs of nature and local communities, end quote. And that's according to the Guardian, as documented there. The idea of planting trees, so they will, take, they will basically catch this carbon and store it as the central goal, if you will, not only is unproven, because again, these old growth forests do more for that than all these new smaller trees, but it also threatens the food security and the rights and the cultures and the land security of indigenous peoples in those areas. We have no right to trash the planet in the affluent West and then steal the land of indigenous people of color so we can plant plantations of trees so we don't have to cut our emissions. So it turns out Greta was right about all of this. Myth number nine, each ton, uh, oh, and the other thing too about number eight, when you do that, when you plant a bunch of the same kind of trees, it's also a threat to biodiversity. And Biodiversity, a lot of people don't understand, is very important. Everything is linked. So when, when you don't have biodiversity, you've already hurt the system. It's kind of like, think of a patient with cancer. The, the solution is to fill them with chemo. You're basically destroying their body in order to save the body. That's crazy. Miss number, and, that's a, and biodiversity is the same thing. We're, we're going to plant mono monoculture, same trees, for what? Myth number nine, each ton of carbon dioxide is the same and can be treated interchangeably. The scientists classify this myth as false. And they go on to say, quote, carbon dioxide removal to tomorrow cannot compensate for emissions today. I'm gonna to say that again. The scientists claim, quote, carbon dioxide removal tomorrow cannot compensate for emissions today. Emissions from luxury consumption should not be considered equal to emissions from essential food production. And storage of carbon in plants and soils cannot compensate for emissions of fossil carbon, end quote. I think they make it pretty crystal clear there. And now we have myth number 10. The myth is products and travel can be, quote, climate neutral or even climate positive. The scientists classify myth number 10 as false. And they say, look, products, travel that's sold as climate neutral or climate positive, 
because of claims to offset do still have what they call, quote, a carbon footprint. And they just come out and say that marketing is misleading. It may, it may actually lead to people um, using fossil fuel more, more emissions, because the offsetting, quote, incentivizes increased consumption. I'll say it again. Quote, products and travel that are sold as climate neutral or climate positive due to offsetting do still have a carbon footprint. Such marketing is misleading and may even lead to more emissions as the offsetting incentivizes increased consumption, end quote. Okay, so these scientists go on to say, look, climate change, I'm going to call it what it is, global climate devastation. This is an existential threat to all of us. Every person, every nation, every animal, you name it. And the scientists go on, and again, if I'm reading so much from this particular article, it's because they say it so well, I couldn't improve upon it. So they go on to say, quote, unprecedented rapid and sustained emissions reductions starting here and now are essential for tackling the climate crisis and living up to the commitments in the Paris Agreement, end quote. Okay? There's no amount of net zero or carbon offsetting that is going to compensate for continued emissions. We have to cut our emissions now. It's not neither or. We have to do both. There's no amount of scheming that's going to buy our way out of this. Okay? It's like the meth addict or the cocaine addict that thinks, well, I'll just take a little less and it'll magically work out. No, it won't. The only way we might get ourselves out of this is, yes, keep developing these technologies in conjunction with reducing our emissions drastically. So the scientists go on and they have several suggestions. One suggestion is to shift focus from what they call mid-century net zero targets to, quote, immediate real emissions reductions in our own high-income countries. And they go on to say that reductions of at least 10% per year are needed. And that's as documented by TAND, TANDF online. Okay? And that, they say that's the only way we're going to fulfill the promises of the Paris Agreement, period. Relying on unproven technologies, even risky ones, will not do it. Uh, deployment of negative emissions technologies, they call again, unproven. It won't do it. We must reduce our emissions to at least 10% per year, period. They also go on to say that those of us that are in high-income countries, in the West, in other words, besides maximizing emissions reductions here, we must increase what they call climate finance contributions to low-income countries. Okay? Because basically, at the, right now, it's the poorest nations that are paying for our sins. Those of us that cause the problem, it's the old adage, you broke it, you bought it. We broke the climate in the wealthy nations. We need to pay for it. And we should not expect people in low-income countries to pay for our sins. And we need to help them out so that 
they can develop and they can develop with renewable energy. We can't tell these growing economies, oh, you guys can't have cars anymore. We're not willing to do the same. We can't lecture them about reducing emissions if we're not going to help them out somehow because we caused this problem in the West, in the affluent West. So the countries that are the least responsible are still the most vulnerable to this climate devastation and they have to be helped out and help transform them to zero carbon societies. And the science is saying that's part of the climate debt that we owe, and I agree. They also say we have to reject this offsetting between high and low income countries. And we have to replace that very bad, unjust model, I would say, again, with climate financing, but climate financing that's based on sound scientific evidence. And I'm not talking about scientists that make their living working for a fossil fuel company. We have to have a limited carbon budget and global climate justice. And that's what this is really about, global climate justice. The scientists go on to say we have to define separate targets for negative emissions and emissions reductions. Okay? And we have to do this as a climate investment or climate financing, not buying carbon offsets. That's like the rich kid whose daddy pays a bribe to buy him out of trouble after the kid did something horrible. Can't do that. They go on to say we have to stop uh, marketing products and calling them climate neutral or climate positive because it's a lie. And we have to stop extracting and using fossil fuels, period. We have to have real zero targets, not net zero. And we need, according to these scientists, an international treaty for the final termination of fossil fuel production. And that's just documented by fossil, fossilfueltreaty.org. The authors, oh my God, Alice Dare Skelton, professor of geochemistry and petroleum, I mean petrology, excuse me, Stockholm University. Alice Larkin, professor of climate science and energy policy, Tyndall Center, University of Manchester, that's in England. Andrew Ringsmith, researcher in complex systems and sustainability complexity science hub, Vienna. Carolyn Greiser, researcher in ecology, Stockholm University. David Fox, Senior Lecturer of Youth Studies, Stockholm University. Duncan McLaren, Professor of Cultural Political Ecology, Lancaster University. Doreen Stabinski, Professor of Global Environmental Politics, College of the Atlantic. Eric Huss, uh, Geographer and Glaciologist, so he deals with glaciers, CEO, CEO of Sustainability. Flora Haju, Associate Professor of Rural Development, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Greg Marsden, Professor of Transport Governance, University of Leeds. Hans Svarsdad, Professor of Development Studies, Oslo Metropolitan University. Enrique Lagerlin, Professor of Theoretical Philosophy, Stockholm University. Isaac Stoddard, PhD student in Natural Resources and Sustainable Development, Uppsala University. James Dyke, Assistant Professor, I'm sorry, Assistant Director, Global Systems Institute, University of Exeter. Jean-Fries Lund, Professor of Political Ecology, University of Copenhagen. Jillian Anabel, Professor of Transport and Energy, University of Leeds. 
Joanna Hay, Emeritus Professor of Atmospheric Physics, Imperial College, London. Judith Nora Hart, Postdoctoral Researcher in Climate Change and Security, Franco-German Center for Social Science Research, Berlin. Julia Steinberger, Professor of Social Ecology and Ecological Economics, University of Lausanne. Kate Dooley, Research Fellow, Climate and Energy College, University of Melbourne. Kathleen McAtee, Professor of International Relations, San Francisco State University. Kevin Anderson, Professor of Energy and Climate Change, Uppsala University and the University of Manchester. Clara Fisher, Associate Professor of Rural Development, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. And it goes on. I can't, well, I'm almost done. Um, Magnus Engart, Reader and Meteorology Researcher's Desk. Hopefully I don't miss anybody. Uh, let's see now. Linda Angstrom, Researcher in Rural Development and Policy, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Maria, I'm sorry, Maria Johansson, PhD in Fire Ecology Researcher's Desk. Maria Woolworth Soderberg, Researcher in Rhetoric and Climate Communication, Södertörn University. Mats Bjork, Professor of Marine Plant Physiology, Stockholm University. Nicholas Hallstrom, Hallstrom excuse me, Environment and Developmental Studies, What Next? Niels Markison, Senior Lecturer in the Politics of Environmental Technology, Lancaster University. So far, I only see one American, one American university, that is. Paul Glantz, Associate Professor of Atmospheric Science, uh, Stockholm University. Peter Newell, Professor of International Relations, University of Sussex. Richard B. Pankos, Professor of Biochemistry, University of Bristol. Sarah Milne, Senior Lecturer in Environment and Development, Australian National University. We're almost there. Um, Stephen Wawrinicki, Researcher of Sustainability Science, Lincoln University. Stig Olaf Holmes, Senior Lecturer in Ecology, Umeå University. Stuart Kapstick, Deputy Director, Center for Climate Change and Social Transformation, Cardiff University. Svetlana Gross, PhD student in Business Administration, Stockholm University of Economics. Soren Anderson, Sustainability Advisor, The Future. Tor A. Benjaminson, Professor of International Environment and Development Studies, Norwegian University of Life Sciences, and Wim Carton, Assistant Professor of Sustainability Science, Lund University. It is not only very telling, but is extremely to our shame as Americans that there was only one academic from an American university. Only one. Gee whiz, wonder why. We know why. So this article was initiated, according to this, by the researcher's desk, and it's available in Swedish as Dagens Nyheter. So let's go on. This is from um, a, a, a publication called The Conversation. And The Conversation advertises themselves as a publication with, quote, academic rigor and journalistic flair. And this was... They uh, written mm, just a couple months ago. The headline is Climate Scientist uh, Concept of Net Zero is a Dangerous Trap. And it was written by James Dyke, who's a senior lecturer in global systems at the University of Exeter. Robert Watson, who's the Emeritus Professor in Environmental Sciences, University of East Anglia. And Wolfgang Knorr, Senior Research Scientist, Physical Geography and Ecosystem Science, Lund University. There's a disclosure statement, too. You don't see that often, do you? 
The authors do not work for, consult, own shares in, or receive funding from any company or organization that would benefit from this article and have disclosed no relevant affiliation beyond their academic appointment. My, that's refreshing. Actual academic integrity. Mm. God bless. So it's in conjunction with Lund University and the University of East Anglian who provided funding and they're members of the Conversation UK. So these three authors come together and they say that between the three of them, they must have spent more than 80 years collectively thinking about climate change. And they ask a very simple question, quote, why has it taken us so long to speak out about the obvious dangers of the concept of net zero, end quote. And they go on to say, quote, in our defense, the premise of net zero is deceptively simple, and we admit that it deceived us, end quote. This, oh, God, I'd love to meet these people, okay? This is so unbelievably good and refreshing. So they go on to say, they talk about the threats of climate change, and they are the direct result of there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, you know, logically it follows we have to stop emitting, emitting this carbon, and we have to remove some of it as well. And this idea is what, what has to happen to avoid what they call catastrophe. And... They said there were a bunch of suggestions how to do this, uh, everything from mass tree planting, we talked about that before, to, quote, high-tech direct air capture devices that suck out carbon dioxide from the air. And the direct air capture devices was, doc was documented by the BBC and an article called The Trillion Dollar Plan to Capture CO2. Now, these three, these guys, they go on to say that the consensus right now is that if we use these so-called carbon dioxide removal techniques um, at the same time as we reduce our burning of fossil fuels, we can basically reduce global warming much more rapidly. And you say it would happen just much more rapidly. And that hopefully around the middle of this century, we could possibly achieve net zero. And they go on to explain that net zero is the point, quote, is the point at which any residual emissions of greenhouse gases are balanced by technologies removing them from the atmosphere. So it's kind of, if you've always been on a diet, it's the idea of, hmm, I really want that piece of cake. That cake is 500 calories. And then you look up, hmm, I have to do, let's see now, on the treadmill, uh, two hours worth in order to burn up those 500 calories. And then no harm, no foul. That's what net zero is saying, basically, that we'll do enough to remove carbon from the atmosphere as well as cut emissions that basically we won't put any more carbon out there than, what, than we can actually remove, Okay. So, again, it's this no harm, no foul thing. And scientists say, this is great in principle. But they also say, quote, in practice, it helps perpetuate a belief in technological salvation and diminishes the sense of urgency surrounding the need to curb emissions now, end quote. This, go, this dovetails beautifully with what Greta Thunberg said. 
And she told the adults, stop believing these fairy tales that you can magically make this work. We have to look at the reality that the idea of net zero, according to the scientists, they go on to say, the, quote, the idea of net zero has licensed a recklessly cavalier burn now, pay later approach, which has seen carbon emission continue to soar, end quote. And they go on to say that it also has really um, set up the destruction of the natural world because it increases deforestation today, the idea being that we're going to plant all these forests. And let's face it, too many Americans don't understand how long it takes for some trees to grow. For a tree to grow to maturity, a lot of species might take 30, 40 years. We don't have that. And so they say, you know, to understand how this has happened, you know, how humanity's gambled on whether it survives, you have to go back to the late 1980s when we became more aware of climate change. So James Dyke, who is one of the authors, and he's also at the University of Exeter, said, quote, over the years, doubt has developed into dread, this gnawing sense that we have made a terrible mistake. There are now times when I freely admit to a sense of panic. How did we get this so wrong? What are our children supposed to think about how we have acted? End quote. So they talk about the history, steps towards net zero. So in 1988, there was an administrator of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies named James Hansen. And he was well-regarded in academia, but he really wasn't known very well outside of academia. But on, on June 23rd, um, he was about to become the world's most famous climate scientist, according to these guys. And that was because he gave testimony to the Congress in the U.S. And he presented the evidence that the Earth's climate was warming and humans were the primary cause. And, he, you know, Hansen was quoted as saying, quote, the greenhouse effect has been detected and is changing our climate now, end quote. Now, these scientists go on to explain, if we, if we had honest government and if we had acted on the testimony that James Hansen gave back in 1988, we could have most likely decarbonized our society at about 2% a year, which would have given us, according to them, a two in three chance of limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees, the magic number. So if we had listened to James Hansen, and if we had done what he'd said, we would have met that goal now. They go and say it would have been a big challenge but the main, the main problem at the time would have been to just stop what they call the accelerating use of fossil fuels and then share out our future emissions. In other words, stop being pigs. And then they go on to say four years later there was some hope. Um, there was the Earth Summit in Rio in 92. All the nations agreed to stabilize concentrations of greenhouse gases so they, didn't, so they weren't going to be dangerously interfering with the climate. Then the 97 Kyoto Summit tried to put that goal into practice. But you see what's happening. We've gone from 1988 and almost 10 years later, and it still hasn't happened. And then they go on to explain that around the time of 97, the first computer model linking greenhouse gas emissions to the impact on various sectors of the economy were developed. And these were considered hybrid climate economic models, which were known as, quote, integrated assessment models. Now, they allowed the people that made the model to 
kind of link together economic activity to the climate. So for instance, they could explore how various changes in investments and technology could lead to changes in greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, you know, if people invested in green technology, we could have done both. And, you know, these basically these integrated assessment models, people thought, oh, wow, this is great. You can, you know, try out all different scenarios on the computer screen. You don't have to risk implementing them. You can save humanity. And these integrated assessment models became uh, basically a tool, became key guidance for climate policy. And they still remain that way. They're still considered a key tool. These scientists go on to say that these computer models weren't a solution. They were a panacea because they removed the need for deep critical thinking. And the models, they also accused represented society as this web, all right, of what they call, quote, emotionless buyers and sellers. And I and idealized it. And they and those models ignored the complex social and political realities of climate change itself. And we can't evade that. The social and political realities very definitely affect whether or not good policies come into play. But like a lot of things in the IT industry and computers, the human factor wasn't considered. Everything was math, but that doesn't always work. And so this allowed the business community to take these models and insist that market-based approaches are always going to work. And that resulted, because of these integrated models, in what they called incremental changes to legislation and taxes. All right? In other words, these computer models, they were twisted and they were manipulated by those that prefer market-based everything. And instead of being a promise to a solution, they became the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a cancer. Okay? And at the same time these computer models were developed, there were some efforts to secure U.S. action on the climate um, because they were going to let the U.S. count carbon sinks of the country's forests. Um, the U.S. at that time argued that if, if we managed our forest really well, we could store so much carbon in trees and soil that that amount should be subtracted from our obligations to limit the burning of oil, coal, and gas. Again, trying to chisel, cheat, and buy our way out. But it didn't matter because the U.S. Senate never ratified the agreement. Okay, and that was as documented by Senate.gov. But it kept pushing this idea that more trees could offset the burning of coal, oil, and gas now. And the computer models kept churning out numbers um, that saw atmospheric carbon dioxide go as low as the modeler wanted. And then, quote, ever more sophisticated scenarios could be explored, which reduced the perceived urgency to reduce fossil fuel use. And that was including carbon sinks. In other words, this idea, we'll plant trees, we'll plant, our, we'll plant trees, and that will buy our way out of this, and we can keep emitting as much fossil fuel, use as much fossil fuel as we want. So 
Instead of being a tool for good, these computer models were twisted and it really became a Pandora's box. And that's where these scientists claim the, quote, the genesis of today's net zero policies, end quote. So Wolfgang Knorr, who's a senior research scientist, physical geography and ecosystem science at Lund University is quoted. He said, quote, it came to me as a real shock that I must have contributed personally to the net zero trap. In 2008, the G8 countries declared a voluntary target of reducing carbon dioxide emissions by 50% by 2050. Back then, I responded by publishing computations I had performed specifically to show the need for net zero in the long run, stating that any remaining carbon dioxide emissions by human activities would have to be balanced by an artificial sink. But since none of our study's co-authors was an expert, we did not consider how much of that artificial sink would be needed to sustain our economic system or even if it was technically possible to create, end quote. So then the attention in the 1990s was focused on increasing energy efficiency and energy switching. So UK, for instance, they, they decided to move from coal to gas. Then they talked about potential nuclear energy because it delivers amounts of carbon-free electricity. Of course, it creates another kind of deadly waste. And we were wishing our way, these innovations would somehow wish our way out of the problem. But by the turn of the millennium, it was clear these hopes were unfounded, according to this paper, and mainly because we were still doing baby steps, incremental change, okay? And it just doesn't work because these economic climate models were in the way. And that's basically the idea of protecting big money, nothing else. And so models began to include more examples of carbon capture and storage, um, and again, that's the idea, you remove carbon dioxide from coal-fired stations and so on, and then you store the captured carbon deep underground, indefinitely. What it would do deep underground, we don't know. And that could have been a solution, but, you know, you would have to separate the compressed carbon dioxide from the fossil gas, then you'd inject it underground, and these are called enhanced oil recovery schemes. And they were designed to force gases into oil wells. And again, it, the oil would be burnt later, which again releases more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Carbon capture and storage, a twist on earlier models. Again, this goes on and on and on. And again, the idea of carbon capture and storage was still viewed by policymakers as a way out of evading the needed cuts. The idea that we have to cut our consumption. Then net zero came about. The international climate change community, they met in Copenhagen in 2009, and it became clear carbon capture and storage wasn't going to be sufficient for two main reasons. One, it didn't exist yet, not in 2009. And there were no carbon capture and storage facilities in operation on any coal-fired station. And, number, and there was also, there was no prospect that the technology was really going to have any meaningful impact on rising emissions from increased coal use in the foreseeable future. But the biggest barrier to implementing this was cost. Okay? And because in order to burn large amounts of coal, and generate cheap electricity, they would have had to retrofit the carbon scrubbers on existing power stations. 
They would have had to build new infrastructure to pipe captured carbon. They would have developed suitable, what they call geological storage sites, and that takes a lot of money. So they want to say that beside one demonstrator, there's never been, quote, any capture of carbon dioxide from a coal-fired power station chimney with that captured carbon then being stored underground, end quote. Again, this is all wishful thinking. Then there was the Beck scheme. I'm moving on. I'm kind of trying to make this short because it's much more complex than this. BEX is the Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Storage, or BECCS. And this was considered to be the new savior technology. And the idea was they would burn replaceable biomass. That would be wood, crops, and agricultural waste. And they'd burn that instead of coal in power stations, okay? Then they capture the carbon dioxide, sound familiar, from the power station chimney, again, stored underground. And they could produce electricity at the same time that they remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that's because biomass, like trees, as they grow, they suck in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We know this story. And they thought that planting mass amounts of trees and other bioenergy crops and storing carbon dioxide that was released when it was burnt, that more carbon could be removed from the atmosphere. And the international community, you know, said, okay, it's 2015, climate conference in Paris. Let's look at it. Then they said it was a Parisian false dawn. Okay. Um, basically, after decades, according to authors of false starts and failures, the international community agreed to do whatever they needed to to limit global warming to below 2, two degrees, preferably 1.5 degrees, compared to what they call pre-industrial levels. Now, this was the Paris Agreement. And rich industrialized nations <clears throat> would be impacted more as global temperatures rise. But they also, they also pointed out that basically island states like the Maldives and the Marshall Islands are at more severe imminent risk. There was a UN special report documented by the IPCC, and it made clear that, quote, if the Paris Agreement was unable to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, the number of lives lost to more intense storms, fires, heat waves, famines, and floods would significantly increase, end quote. <clears throat> okay, so you think the scientific community would be for it, right? The authors of this paper literally said they struggled to name any climate scientist who at the time, in 2015, thought the Paris Agreement was feasible. They couldn't find one. Um, they had been told by some scientists that the Paris Agreement was, quote, of course important for climate justice work, for climate justice, but unworkable, and, quote, a complete shock. No one thought limiting to 1.5 degrees was possible, end quote. In fact, instead of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, there was a senior academic in the IPCC that concluded we were headed way beyond three degrees by the end of the century. And that was in an article from the conversation, Climate Change, We've Created Civilization, Hellbent on Destroying Itself. So 
these scientists can blame themselves and said, look, instead of confronting the doubts, instead of calling it out, we just constructed more elaborate what they call fantasy worlds. World. And they went on to say, oh, excuse me, quote, the price to pay for our cowardice is having to keep our mouths shut about the ever-growing absurdities of the required planetary-scale carbon dioxide removal, end quote. Robert Watson, Emeritus Professor in Environmental Sciences, University of East Anglia, was quoted as saying, quote, relying on untested carbon dioxide removal mechanisms to achieve the Paris targets when we have the technologies to transition away from fossil fuels today is plain wrong and foolhardy. Why are we willing to gamble the lives and livelihoods of millions of people, the beautiful life all around us, and the futures of our children, end quote. And then came back. Because at the time, the only way this climate economic model could find scenarios that would be consistent with the Paris Agreement. In other words, the politicians kept insisting on a climate economic model instead of stabilizing global emissions, period. And that that is too good to be true. It's not going to work. And part of this was to require massive planting schemes for trees and bioenergy crops. And it's true, we do need more trees. Bex refers to, quote, quote, dedicated industrial-scale plantations regularly harvested for bioenergy rather than carbon stored away in forests, trunks, roots, and soils. That's it. In other words, Bex is another fraud. That's it. And... Currently, the two most efficient biofuels, according to the um, NIH, is sugarcane for bioethanol, palm oil for biodiesel. They're grown in the tropics. And so they've got these big plantations of monoculture trees and other monoculture energy crops. They're harvested. They're devastating biodiversity. And that's important. Think dust bowl and worn out soil that won't grow anything after a while. And this affects whether we have food. And it's also estimated that Bex would demand between 0.4 and 1.2 billion hectares of land. According to these writers, that's between 25 to 80% of all land that's right now under cultivation, like for food. So how will you achieve that at the same time as feeding 8 to 10 billion people around the middle of the century, or without destroying native vegetation and biodiversity. Okay. Furthermore, growing billions of trees is going to take a lot of water. In some places where potable water is already scarce. So basically, it looks like what? They're going to grow these trees so the West can continue to burn fossil fuel and feel better about it. And then meanwhile, people in the global South will die from lack of potable water or disease connected to it, okay? And you have to understand, replacing grassland or fields with forests also means that the land surface itself is going to become darker, and darker land absorbs more energy from the sun and temperatures rise. And then you have the, the idea of these, these big tree plantations. Do you honestly think that these big investors are going to just give these people a decent price for their land? No, they're going to take it. We know this. This is the colonialism 
nothing new here. So, once again, these are pipe dreams. Okay, we can go through this, but I'm starting to run out of time here. I didn't judge this as well as it should have been. And then after net zero fails, which it will, then we have the promise of geoengineering, or, you know, as I call Bill Gates' insane notions, the idea that we could intervene in the climate system. Okay? Um, it's not that geoengineering should never be considered, but to give you an example, one of the most researched ideas of geoengineering is called solar radiation management. And the idea is that you inject millions of tons of sulfuric acid into the stratosphere and that that will reflect some of the sun's energy away from the earth. I think that's what Bill Gates was talking about. Again, here's the problem. We have to look at the fact that geoengineering should be the last resort, not just jump straight to it because it's untested. The ramifications, the results could be disastrous. We just don't know. And then we have this, again, premise that this net zero, these net zero schemes, carbon capture, the things we've talked about, this basically serves as a blank check for the continued burning of fossil fuels and the acceleration of the destruction of our planet. And these, these scientists, they compare carbon reduction technologies to the ejector seat of a jet. It should only be used as last result. Resort, excuse me. They're saying, look, there are no more fairy tales. The only way to keep humanity safe is the immediate and sustained radical cuts to greenhouse gas emissions in a socially justice way. So, I'm sorry, in a socially just way. And this is the what I call the environmental racism factor. We can't make poor brown people in the global south pay for our sins. And this is what we're talking about right now. Scientists in general are skeptical about the Paris Agreement, but they do it in private. I wish more of them would come out. Um, they're skeptical about the Paris Agreement, according to this article. They're skeptical about BECS, offsetting geoengineering, and net zero. We need more scientists to come forward and tell the truth. We need more scientists in these fields to come forward and tell these politicians and these corporate attorneys to stop lying. This article is saying the current net zero policies will not keep global warming to within 1.5 degrees, and they say so because they weren't intended to. Net zero policies are, they were, they were created and they're still driven by a need to protect business as usual, not the climate. Time for wishful thinking over. We covered a lot tonight, and I apologize if it was a little, a little shaky. There's a lot to cover. We will talk about this more in detail, certain specifics, but I wanted to give you this overview. So in conclusion, the entire net zero scheme, as I said before, reminds me of my diabetic Aunt Mary, who, you know, she lost a leg to diabetes. But she, well, she received her insulin and she rationalized, okay, I can take my insulin and I can eat half a, half a chocolate cake. 
when the diabetes eventually killed her, you know, everybody was scratching their head and wondering why. Look, like most business policies in this age of unbridled, what I'll call casino capitalism, the one percenters behave like spoiled, immature children who can't go without their expensive toys. Only these toys are fueled by the very substances that are destroying the planet. Net zero, along with carbon capture, is just another stalling tactic. It's truly ironic that big business and I'll call them out, the politicians, the political whores that enable their trashing the planet, mock Greta Thunberg, since Greta seems to be one of the few adults in the room as compared to the childish antics of big business. The truth is, we've trashed this planet, maybe irretrievably so. So while political leaders are eager to bend over, spread their cheeks, and take it, they want to take the rest of us with them. We can't allow this. So I'm pleading with the scientific community. We need scientists of conscience to come forward en masse and say, these schemes won't work. We have to cut emissions. The public will back you, but we need you to stop remaining silent because silence is death. Except this time, it's the death of our planet. That's simple. We need the scientific community to come forward and call out the political class, call out the business leaders, call out the the armies of corporate attorneys for the liars they are. And we need them to communicate to the rest of us in plain terms why this won't work and what we need to do immediately, yesterday. Greta was right. She just was. This is about the future of life on this planet. So we need to stop idolizing peons like Elon Musk. And we need to start demanding that our scientists tell us the truth. We need the scientific community to come forward and blow the whistle on these schemes. And we needed it yesterday. Otherwise, it won't matter. There won't be a planet left to live on. Sometimes I just get too tired to keep talking about it. But I'll keep trying. So with that I say, good night and God bless.